Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. There I stood, my feet shoulders width apart, my hands folded in front of me, my heart racing, palms sweaty. Everyone was looking at me. I'd been waiting for this moment for a long time. And it's here. The doors in the back shut. The music changed. And I waited. The crowd's looking at me. Suddenly, the, the door swung open. Everyone stood. And in that moment, everything around me turned blurry. And there she was. She walked towards me. We locked eyes. And I knew in that moment, everything was about to change. If I were to ask you what picture comes to your mind when I say salvation... What picture would come to your mind? Because whatever picture would come to your mind, whatever way you would, you would draw what it looks like to be saved will impact the way you live. Uh, for example, for some of you, if I said salvation, um, or it's, what does salvation look like, you would maybe say it's, it's like a ticket, that it's a ticket that you get when you um, repent of your sin and you ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin. And he, he says, sure, I'll forgive you of your sin. And by the way, here's a ticket. It's a righteous ticket. You, you want to hold on to this. And act, so you put it in the back of your cell phone because you know that when you die, you'll definitely have your cell phone with you. And so you put it in the back of your cell phone case. And so when you get to heaven, you can pull out your righteous ticket. You can put it underneath the scanner and it will scan righteous please admit one, you'll walk through and you'll be there. And for some of you, um, that's how you would define salvation. Now, I will say this, there is some truth in what I just said, but it is woefully inadequate. It is woefully short of the wonder of salvation that we see in the Bible. We see a picture that is way fuller, a picture that is way more profound And that is what we're going to look at tonight. As Isaac so skillfully said, we are in a series through the book of Revelation, and we are coming to the climax of the book of Revelation uh, tonight, and then we will end it tomorrow night with the very last chapters of the Bible. How exciting is that? And what we come to tonight is we come to an image that is one of the more profound and one of the more consistent images of salvation in the Bible. And so, um, if you will, open up your Bible to Revelation chapter 19. Now, I want to set the table for Revelation chapter 19 for just a minute. Revelation chapter 19 is a chapter of celebration, and it is, um, it, it's, it's a, a chapter that four different times 
the term hallelujah is exclaimed. And you may say, what does hallelujah mean? I am so glad you asked. Let me tell you what hallelujah means. It literally means praise the Lord. You guys ever heard the term hallelujah? Have you ever sung the term hallelujah? Do you know it's only mentioned four times in the New Testament and all four times in our chapter tonight, the hallelujah chapter. So what are they singing hallelujah about? Well, I'll tell you what they're singing hallelujah about. Number one is they're singing hallelujah because God is bringing judgment on the earth. You're like, why are they singing hallelujah for that? Because God is rectifying everything that's broken in this world. He's coming against everything that's come against him. He's judging everything that's come against his people and his desire for the flourishing of the earth. He is judging it. And so what you will see in chapters 19 and 20 is you will see him bring judgment on, uh, on the beast that we learned about in chapter 13. You're gonna see him bring judgment on the false prophet, which is also one of the beasts from chapter 13. You're gonna see him bring judgment on, on Satan and he throws them all into a lake of fire and he is bringing judgment. And in the middle of this chapter on judgment, we get wedged right in the middle a picture of our salvation. And it is a picture that has run through the threads of scripture that comes to a culmination in our passage tonight. And so we are going to read verses 6 through 9 of chapter 19. Will you read with me? Verse 6 is this. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like a roar of, a, of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting. Okay, so stop right there. What you're getting ready to read was not just said docilely, it was shouted. Okay, here's what, you, what I want you to picture. Last year, I had the privilege, and some of you did too, the privilege of being at the UVA versus Virginia Tech home football game. And let me tell you, When UVA scored the winning touchdown, the place was going nuts. It would be called a a great multitude that was roaring like rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting. And what were they shouting? Okay. No, the Nahuahua. That's not, okay. Yeah, that's what that that day. But, okay, so I want you to have that picture. Okay, JPJ's, I mean, not JPJ, uh, not, no. Scott Stadium. Scott Stadium is packed. I know where I was. Okay, there we go. And the crowd, the multitude of heaven, this is what they're shouting. Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. And then this is why they are rejoicing and being glad and giving him glory. You guys ready? Here's what it says. For the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then verse nine, it says this. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. And he added, these words are are true words of God. The angel's like, you can take that to the bank. Blessed are those who are at the wedding supper of the Lamb. So we get this picture of salvation that runs throughout the Bible, and it's the picture of a wedding. What I would like to do is spend just a few minutes talking about the image of wedding and talk a little bit about um, what a wedding was like in that day, and then talk about three implications of it for our lives, okay? Okay. 
So first of all, one thing you need to understand is in, in the Jewish context, Jewish people did not get engaged like we get engaged today, okay? So they didn't get engaged like we did. They, they, they didn't have an engagement. They had what's called a betrothal. And a betrothal is different than an engagement in this way, that when you are betrothed to somebody, you, are, you enter into the covenant at the betrothal. See, when I got engaged, it was saying, you know, at some point at a date to be named later, we are going to get married and enter into a covenant. That's not what a betrothal is. The day you get betrothed, the covenant begins, okay? So this is why Mary and Joseph, um, when he found out that Mary was pregnant, Joseph said, I will divorce her quietly because to end the betrothal, it would require a letter of divorce, okay? So if you were betrothed to somebody, and they got hit by a camel, you know, and they died, you would be considered a widow, okay? Because the covenant started at betrothal. So there were really three stages to getting married in that day. The first was a betrothal. So how would one become betrothed? Here's what would happen. The groom and his father would go to the bride's house and would meet with the father of the bride, and they would negotiate the, the price to be able to marry the father of the bride's daughter because this was a way of expressing the value of, that, of the daughter to that family, okay? And so they would negotiate a price. It was called a mohar price. And after that price was negotiated and paid and a covenant would be formed, and what would happen is the groom would come to the bride after all the negotiations had been done with a cup of wine, And he would bring this cup of wine to his soon-to-be bride in the betrothal, and he would pronounce a betrothal benediction, and he would say this, this cup is a new covenant. And if she took the cup and took a drink of the cup, it was to seal the covenant, okay? And at that point, when the covenant was sealed, she was now said to be set apart for her groom, So that was stage one. And then stage two would happen, and that was the stage of separation. Here's what would happen. The groom would begin to head back to his father's house, but before he would go to his father's house, he would stand at the door, and he says, I'm going to go away to my father's house, and I am going to prepare a place for you. And when the place is prepared, I will come back and get you so you can come and be with me. And then during this time of separation, what he would do is he would uh, make an addition onto his father's house. And it would typically take about a year. And during this time, the bride was to do three things. The bride was to... um, was, was to learn as much as she could about her husband. The bride was to keep herself pure, and the bride was to prepare herself for the upcoming wedding. And she did not know when the wedding would be. But she would wait in expectation about 12 months later, would tonight be the night? And then suddenly, one night, around midnight, the groom and his groomsmen would come with torches 
lit with a horn and the the groomsmen would proclaim the bridegroom is coming the bridegroom is coming as they would go through town and get the bride in the dark of night and take her back to his father's house at that point we hit enter in stage three of the wedding and that's when the wedding would or the marriage would be consummated and after that would be a seven day epic feast that the entire village would take off work take vacation and enjoy the celebration of this new wedding. That was a Middle Eastern wedding in Jesus' day. And Jesus used many of those terms in his ministry. And John uses this as the picture of salvation. So, What I'd like to do is talk about three implications of this image that speak to the nature of salvation. So maybe some of you are out there tonight and you are new to this Christianity thing and you're figuring out um, what it means to be a Christian. And tonight you're going to learn clearly the nature of salvation. Others of you, you've been following Jesus for a long time and you're going to refocus tonight on the nature of salvation The first implication, and the main implication that all the other implications will flow out of is this, is that salvation is fundamentally and profoundly relational. Salvation is fundamentally and profoundly relational. Years ago, we had a fall retreat that we called the R-rated retreat. In fact, our speaker um, next week became a Christian at that retreat. Why do we call it the R-rated retreat? Because here was the whole focus of the entire weekend, and it was worthy of not just a weekend, but an entire semester. The whole focus of the weekend was this, that everything in the Christian life, you spell it with an R, the R of relationship. It is all about relationship. That everything in the Christian life is about relationship with God through Christ. Okay, The reason why Christianity is not receiving a ticket whenever you um, repent of your sin and Jesus forgives you is because that is devoid of relationship. Yes, does your status change? Yes, but it is not fundamentally about a transaction. It is about a relationship. Christianity is not about a transaction. It is about a relationship with the living God through Christ. Furthermore, Christianity is not about uh, doctrine. Now, doctrine is very important. What you believe about God matters. So please don't misunderstand me. In fact, we are encouraged to deepen our doctrine and to, to develop our doctrine and seek more doctrine and understanding of our faith. But why do we do that? Not just so we can pass a test. The reason why we do that is so we can know better the story we find ourselves, the one we have a relationship with and how we got here, how we enter the relationship, what it looks like to be in relationship. That's why we want to know doctrine so we can deepen in our relationship with God. Why do we pray? Okay, you can't spell prayer without an R because it's dripping with relationship. Guys, why do we read the Bible? This book is dripping with relationship. In fact, I I tried it earlier. If you put your ear up to it, 
You can hear the heartbeat of God for a relationship with you. You can't, but you know what I'm talking about. From cover to cover, this is about a relationship with the living God through Christ. Salvation is profoundly and fundamentally relational. It's not about a, about a dogma. It's not about a transaction. It's about a relationship with the living God through Christ. And how often do we muddy up the waters and make it about something so much less? Well, what we find is this, is that it's not just about a relationship, but it's a relationship predicated on God's love for us. You know, I love the fact that in the middle of this judgment passage, we get this profound metaphor of a wedding for salvation. Why do I love that? Well, it's interesting. It says in chapter 19, it says, for the wedding of the lamb has come. Why doesn't it say for the wedding of Jesus has come? Why does it say the wedding of the lamb has come? And why in the middle of two chapters of salvation, do you, I mean, of, of judgment, do you have salvation right in the middle? Here's the reason why. Because it tells you the price that was paid for your salvation when it's bookended with judgment. In other words, if you want to know what you deserved, you deserve the judgment before and you deserve the judgment after. And the reason why you don't get that, but you get a wedding is because of a lamb in the middle. A lamb that absorbed the judgment. In fact, in chapter 19 and and, in verse 15, it says this. It says that, He will tread, he being Jesus, on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Whoa. He will tread on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. That's in the same chapter. Tim Keller says it this way. He says this, until you understand the wrath your sin deserves you will not understand the depth of God's love for you. And when you, until you understand that Jesus submitted and subjected himself, as it were, metaphorically, but really to the, to the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty so he could pay the price for the wedding so that you could be saved. Until you understand that, you will not understand how much God loves you. You will not understand how much it costs for the wedding to be possible. When I was preparing this sermon, I did a little research. I looked up, what was the most expensive wedding in the history of the world? You ever looked that up? Google has an answer. Alexa probably does too, but I didn't ask her. Here's the answer. Um, It was Prince Charles and Diane's wedding. Um, Or Diana? Diana. Princess Diana's wedding. $110 million. And I read that and I thought, that is not the most expensive wedding. That doesn't even begin to compare with the cost of what the great king of glory paid to make our wedding possible. It's just, I mean, that's just a a, a little, just a little bit of what Jesus paid to make the, the wedding of the lamb possible. And until we know that, we will not know how much we're loved until we know how much it costs. 
Tim Keller says it this way. You are far more sinful than you know. And yet, far more loved than you ever dare to imagine. Do you realize how much he loves you? Well, how do you respond to that love? I mean, Jesus summed it up this way. How do you respond to that love? He said, you you can sum it up this way. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. In other words, how does a bride respond to the love of a groom that is given so much to make that day possible with wholehearted devotion and love back to the groom? That's what it looks like to be saved. It's predicated on his love and we respond with love in return. I want to share two more things it means. I want to share them together and then we'll close. The picture of a wedding is a picture of a covenant. And there's two sides to this covenant that I'd like for us to talk about. Two implications of covenant that that covenant sheds light on the nature of our salvation in two ways. And the first way it sheds light on the nature of our salvation is the durability of our relationship with Jesus. Okay, here's the fact. When you are coming to a relationship with Christ, you are secure in that relationship. You are loved. It is all by grace. It is a durable covenant. It isn't about what you... Um, how well you perform today, it's about what he has done on your behalf. That is the basis of the covenant. Are you guys following me? So there, it's durable. The other reality of covenant is this. It's about not just the durability of, of the relationship, it's about the devotion of the relationship. Okay, I've been married for 21 years. No, no, I haven't. I've been married for 23 years. <laughs> Whoops, okay. 22? I don't know. A lot of years. No, I got married in 1998. So 22 years. 22 years. Split the difference. Okay. 22 years. Been married for 22 years. My, all of my life has been impacted by the fact that I am married. Anywhere I go, anything that I do, I am always aware of the fact that I'm married. If somebody asks, hey, can you come speak somewhere? Do you know what I say? I'll have to talk to my wife about that. If, if I want to make a decision like, ah, oh, man, maybe I ought to buy that. I'll be like, I need to talk to Amy about that. I don't just make decisions without talking to Amy, right? The fact is, the fact that I am in covenant with her changes the totality of my life because I am devoted to her and we are now one. And so all aspects of my life are changed because I am in covenant. That is about the devotion of the relationship. Are you guys following me? Okay, so these two realities of the durability of covenant and the devotion of covenant come together and form a paradox. I want to just flesh this out for a couple minutes. On one side, the durability of our relationship with Christ being a covenant gives us a posture of rest in that relationship. It is by grace that you have been saved. You are loved Um, in Christ. You are secure in Christ. It's not about, there's nothing to earn. It's about what is given and received. And so therefore, there is a posture of rest. You can rest in the grace of God. You don't have to wake up, try to prove yourself good enough and worthy enough so you can still be a Christian for another day. No, it is by God's grace you are secure. Isn't that good news? The durability, a posture of rest. On the other side is devotion. And when you get married and you enter into a covenant, 
The goal of that covenant is not so you can just comfortably coexist. The goal of that covenant, people, let me put it this way. People don't get married for less intimacy. They don't get married to squelch intimacy. They get married for more intimacy, right? For more communion, to know each other better. That is what fundamentally drives the the marriage, that there is this pursuit of wanting to grow in their relationship together. So So there's a devotion, and in that devotion, it creates a posture of pursuit. Are you following me? So on one side, durability gives you a rest in Christ, and then the devotion gives you a pursuit in Christ that you want to you want to go uh, you want to know that person more than you've ever known them and be more intimate than you've ever been. Okay, so here's what happens in covenant: we must embrace the posture of rest and the posture of pursuit. What happens if we only embrace one? What if you, ha- you understand the durability of the covenant and so there's a posture of rest, but you don't understand the devotion of covenant and so there is no pursuit? Here's what it looks like. It looks like somebody who gets married and thinks the goal of getting married was getting the marriage license instead of actually living like a married person, right? And anybody would say that's a dysfunctional marriage. The goal of of the marriage isn't about the marriage license. The goal of the marriage is that they would have a greater devotion and intimacy with each other. And when you just have the durability and the posture of rest, but no pursuit, you get what A.W. Tozer calls an ignoble contentment, where you are content in a way that is not noble. On the other side, if all you have is devotion, and so there's this posture of pursuit, but you don't understand the durability then what's gonna happen is you're going to try to pursue God to try to earn something. You're gonna fall in the ditch of legalism that somehow it's about what you do and did I do good enough today? And did I prove my value? Did I prove my worth? Is our relationship still okay? And you're going to miss out. You're gonna end up in legalism and miss out on the freedom and the glory and the wonder of God's grace in the gospel. Now let's come back to our passage. Verse eight pulls these two together so beautifully. It says this, it says, fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear. In other words, the the robe of, of the garment of salvation was just given to her to wear. She didn't earn the garment. It was given to her to wear. And then it says in parentheses, the fine linen stands for the acts, the righteous acts of God's holy people. In other words, it was given to her. It was all by grace. And yet it was lived out visibly and actively in the devotion and in the pursuit. And what you see is this restful pursuit, the paradox of your salvation come together in verse eight. It is given and yet it is lived out in righteous acts. The Christian salvation, the nature of it is one of a rest in grace and a pursuit of intimacy simultaneously. So I have two questions for you with the durability. Do you have a posture of rest in the grace of God in Christ? And in devotion, do you pursue intimacy in your walk with Jesus? Do you want to know him more? Do you want to love him more? At the end of of, of this break, do you want to know him better than you do today? Today? 
Well, as I begin to close, it says in verse 7, and his bride has made herself ready. You know, as the churches in the book of Revelation heard this, I got to imagine that that line, and his bride has made herself ready, struck them. I remember July 18th, 1998, before I walked out on that faithful stage, I was in the back room and my groomsmen came back and they said, she looks amazing. I was like, really? <laughs> Only thing that I knew is that the dress was going to be white. I had no idea what the dress was. I had no idea how her hair would be. I had no idea what her makeup would be. I had no, I, I had no, I, I didn't see her. I didn't get a peep of it. I, it was just, okay, I'm going to be just shocked and stunned. And she had made herself ready. And I won't forget when they came back, she looks good. I, all right. And I waited for those doors to open. I have a question for you. Jesus has betrothed himself to you at the cost. Through the depth of his love, he has paid the lavish price of being tread through the wrath of the winepress of God Almighty. And as you wait consummation, that day where, where, where your salvation will be consummated, as you await that day, are you making yourself ready? Are you making yourself ready? I have to imagine that this line that they were made themselves ready was a great motivator and a great simplifier for the seven churches who are going through persecution, who are going through suffering, who are going through the complexities of life, who are going through the sacrifice of what it meant to walk with Jesus. And this, they made themselves ready, just cut through the chase. And it, and it brought them back into a focus that it's all about a relationship with him. And am I making myself ready for him? Because one day, one day... I'm going, the doors are going to open. And will, I have made myself ready. And it will be the most glorious wedding. Some of you are looking forward to that day. Let me tell you, that day of you getting married will pale in comparison to the glory of this day. <laughs> I mean, it, it won't even compare. Are you making yourself ready? It just cuts through the complexity and brings us back to the simplicity about a relationship with the living God through our Savior who took the wrath on our behalf. Do you spell it with an R? Some of you are listening tonight and all, you've been tracking with us all semester and you've been wondering, tonight is your night. Even as I say this, your heart starts to 
pound a little bit harder because tonight is your night to step into covenant with Jesus. You, you are more sinful than you know. It's true. But you are far more loved than you ever dared to imagine. The nature of salvation is about a relationship. And tonight as we respond, I want to invite you to repent of your sin. Turn towards the groom of all grooms and enter into covenant with him tonight. Do you know how much you're loved? Durability. Do you rest in his grace, in his love? Do you have a posture of rest and devotion? Do you want to know him more? Are you leaning into him? Are you, are, do you, does your heart just want to know him more? Because when you do, this comes alive. It changes things. As we close... We're gonna, we're gonna celebrate that we are invited to the supper of the Lamb. And we are not just invited, we are invited as a guest of honor, as the bride. As the bride that will sit with the groom and feast. And I love what the angel says. He says, Write this down. <laughs> Write it down. I picture him pointing to John. Hey, pick up the pen. And he says this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And then he says this, these words are the true words of God. He's like, trust me, this is true. Everyone there will know they are blessed. <laughs> you don't want to miss this one. So the worship team is going to come and we're going to celebrate that we long for that day. We stand Heavenly Father, as we close out tonight, I pray that you would reorient all of our hearts to the very core of our salvation, a relationship with you through Christ. That we'd always spell it with an R. That we would know that we are so deeply loved. That we would rest in your grace and yet pursue more intimacy and depth and knowledge of you. And Lord, for those who tonight stepped into faith for the first time, I pray, Lord, that they would know the depth of your love, the goodness of your grace. And by the Holy Spirit would hunger and thirst for growing in their new walk with you. Let it be, Lord. For the benediction tonight. May God bless you and keep you.
May he make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and turn his countenance towards you. And may this God of relationship give you peace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week following Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com.